and it's only three verses we'll be doing it together uh, this evening, but uh, this is probably the last time we're in First Timothy that we're going to be doing a short section because the rest of the letter really flows out of all this theology that's being laid down early on. But uh, these verses are pretty important for us to see uh, and understand the implications uh, that, they, that they bring for Paul's argument. So I'm looking at 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. And uh, the, the text reads like this. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of truth. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He manifested in the flesh, was vindicated by the spirit, was observed by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, and was taken up in glory. So here, uh, Paul gives us the, let's say, reason for his writing once again. And at this point, he's circling back to an argument that he starts his, his letter with. Remember, he, when he's writing 1 Timothy, one of the first things he sets down is his goal in chapter 1 is to distinguish between true and false teaching. And the way he's going to do that uh, is to exhort Timothy to hold fast to whatever true teaching is and rebuke whatever false teaching is. And he names specific false teachers. He even uh, gives characteristic descriptions of what these false teachers are like. And you'll notice of those characteristic descriptions, sin uh, pervades in the false teacher's life. That we would say they are generally ungodly, rebellious, sinful people who also want to teach things that propagate further dissension, further argumentation, further rebellion against God's word. And so that's what the false teachers are and what they are like. So their, their lifestyle is an ungodly lifestyle that breeds an ungodly following. And so Paul's warning Timothy against these people. And then when he gets to uh, chapter 2, he tells the church, hey, you're supposed to act in a godly way. Remember in 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verse 4, or sorry, verse 2, for we are to pray for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And similarly, he tells the women when they are conducting themselves in worship, uh, they are to conduct themselves in a godly kind of way, pursuing godly good works. And then when he talks to Timothy about how he's to elect leaders in this church congregation, he, he essentially gives a long list, but we could say these leaders are to be godly men who lead the church well, and who defend false teaching, uh, who defend the church from false teaching. And then in verse 14 uh, of chapter 3, he gives us his summary. I hope to come to you soon, but, uh, we would say, if I'm delayed, I am writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, or in the house of God. So his whole argument from chapter 1 through to the end of chapter 3 is one that's very concerned with right conduct and right belief. And we can see how those arguments are rather interwoven. Now, Paul's not actually all that unique in this. Uh, we've been uh, going through 1 John on Wednesday nights with, uh, with a Bible study with some of the, the Butler students. And 1 John is written almost in the exact same way. You need to believe the right things about Jesus so that you would practice the right things in your faith. So you love other people well, you pursue holiness well. These things are actually very much integrated together. And Paul's argument in 1 Timothy chapter 1, 2, and 3 is the exact same. Right belief leads to right practice, and right practice is in some sense a marker 
of your belief being pure to begin with, right? You see the false teachers by their ungodliness. You see true teaching by its godliness. So uh, this, is, this is Paul's conclusion of an argument that he started all the way in chapter 1. And it's not really the conclusion. It's kind of like a high point that he's going to then dovetail on for the rest of the letter. So this, this section breaks out. It's three verses. And the first two, verses 14 and 15, kind of go together as Paul's reason for writing. And then verse 16 is, let's say, the foundation of the church's theology. So verses uh, 14 and 15, uh, Paul is giving us his, his reason for why he's writing this way, why he's been writing this letter so far. And he writes, remember, he's writing to Timothy, and he says, I'm writing to you these instructions. So this is not Paul saying to the church. He's saying, I'm writing to Timothy these instructions, so that if I'm delayed, you, Timothy, will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. Or you might know how others are to conduct themselves in the household of God. Remember, Timothy's the one who's the presumed elder in this congregation, the one who's supposed to be guarding truth. Timothy's going to be expected to actually implement and guard and nurture this kind of lifestyle in people. And so when Paul writes to Timothy, he's writing to him to say, so you would know how people ought to behave themselves. So in some sense, Timothy's getting, once again, the direct brunt of responsibility for making sure these things actually take place in the church so that God's household will be marked as different from how the world conducts itself. Now that phrase... um, how people ought to conduct themselves in God's house or God's household. Uh, There's kind of two thrusts, uh, two things that that could imply. Uh, The first is, I I think, a play on words, which we've been kind of seeing throughout 1 Timothy. Uh, An elder must be able to conduct themselves well in their own family, their wives and their children well. Why? Uh, Because if someone can't conduct their own family well, how can they be responsible for God's family, right? So that's the wordplay of family to household. And it even says, uh, if, if one can't manage their own household, how can they manage the household of God, right? That's the word play there. But also, that word that's translated here, household, could, ju- could just as easily be translated more in the sense of a house, like a building. And so Paul could be doing a word play where he's both indicating the church is God's family, his, ha- his, his household, and so people ought to conduct themselves well in God's family, but also uh, the church is God's temple. And how one conduct themselves, conducts themselves in God's house, in the Old Testament, God's house is the temple of God, is, is one that's marked by reverence, respect, care. Think about how the, how the Israelites approach God's temple in worship. They do so with reverence, with, with, with great care, with great deliberate intentionality towards worshiping God rightly in not only what they're going to say and how they're going to perform, but also in their heart conduct and in their whole lives. And so I think what Paul's doing here is a little bit of a wordplay where he's saying, yes, the church is God's family, but that doesn't mean the church is some casual affair where you can just do whatever you want and kick it back and approach God however. There's still a reverence component so that you, Christians, would know how to conduct yourself as you gather in in God's temple, in God's church, with his gathered temple body and how you worship God. So there's a a reverence component as well as a familial component going on in these, these words. But that doesn't surprise us because... Well, all of chapter 2 is explaining what do you do when you gather with the body. Uh, men are to be a certain way. Women are to be a certain way. Both of them, uh, in some sense, putting away impurity and, and highlighting purity and holiness and godliness. Why? So that the world might have a clear understanding of what the Christians do and how their testimony is different from the testimony of the world. Christian women are to mark themselves off as different from women who uh, worship other gods and goddesses in the context of Ephesus. 
And so too Christian men are to mark themselves as different from people in the world who are, let's say, religiously influential. They're not to be quarrelsome. They're not to be uh, lording their power over people. Rather, they're to be uh, servants who lead well and who guard uh, people not being contentious. So Christians are to be different. That's all of, all of chapter 2. Chapter 3, elders and deacons are supposed to be different because if they're, the church is supposed to be different, of course the leaders in the church have to be different. And then the conclusion, why? So that you would know how to behave in God's house. Right? Pretty easy summary sentence from Paul there. And then uh, verse 16 uh, explains, let's say, the motivation for why the church ought to be different. So verse 16, Paul writes it this way. He says, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. And then he gives a series of lines. Um, what is this mystery of godliness? So the, the way the ESV renders this, I'll read from the ESV here. It says, he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Now, if you try to follow the logic of that, it's not very cleanly chronological uh, because taken up in glory, well, of course, happens before the pr proclamation among the nations, right? Uh, he's only proclaimed among the nations after he ascends. He ascends at the beginning of the book of Acts. The proclamation among the nations happens in the rest of the book of Acts. Um, he's not believed on in the world before he's taken up into glory. That happens after. So this is not a chronological uh, series of instructions or a series of statements and beliefs. So how are these things organized and, and fitting together? And, and what on earth does this have to do with what Paul just said about conducting ourselves well in God's household? Well, as I said, Paul's argument, his point, is that how you act as a Christian is 100% tied with what you believe as a Christian. And believing rightly means you will act differently than someone who believes wrongly. Or to put it another way, uh, there is no room in the church for belief of one kind that doesn't lead to effectual, practical living on the ground that's different, uh, that, that goes with that belief. There's no room for someone to be a, a Christian in theology only and not in terms of their life and conduct. And similarly, one cannot actually have their life and conduct rightly aligned towards God unless their belief is really rightly aligned towards God. Uh, lest their conduct be poorly motivated, wrongly motivated, done for the approval of man and not for the true worship of God. So belief and practice are intimately tied. There's no room in Christianity for belief that's divorced from practice. We would say that's the problem of the Pharisees. It's hypocrisy. And so Paul's saying that exact same thing here. So this mystery of godliness is tied with, well, all these confessional beliefs. First confessional belief, he was manifested in the flesh. Now, some uh, early manuscripts, particularly in the King James translation uh, or tradition, will say God was manifested in the flesh. And although that's exactly right, because John chapter 1 tells us it is the only begotten God who is the one who is entering into the world in the incarnation, uh, that's not exactly the original text form of 1 Timothy, although the theology is exactly the same. So 1 Timothy rightly reads, he was manifested in the flesh, this he being God, this he being Jesus. Jesus was manifested in the flesh. We would say as the theological term for this is the incarnation, the uh, deity and the humanity combining together, the deity clothing himself in humanity, the second person of the Trinity, revealing himself, manifesting himself in the flesh so that he would redeem his fallen people. 
So this is, let's say, theological point number one, he manifested in the flesh. To be a Christian, to have right godliness, you need to believe this. Because so many false teachings are associated with rejecting Christ's bodily manifestation. If, if he didn't come in bodily form to redeem his people, well, then the human body doesn't matter all that much. So you can do whatever you please with your body, so long as your soul and spirit are, let's say, oriented in the right kind of way. But as Christians, we would say, no, what you do with your body is actually intimately linked with the spiritual health of your soul because you are created as a creature, body and soul together. And so Jesus comes to redeem his people, not just as souls, so he sucks us out as like a spiritual kind of reality, but he redeems us body and soul as his people. He manifests himself in the flesh to do this. And his manifestation in the flesh is accompanied by his vindication by the Spirit. So he's incarnated to, to reveal himself to his people in the flesh. And that incarnation is sealed with, its, with the approval of the Holy Spirit throughout. The baptism of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, ultimately the resurrection of Jesus. All of this points to the Spirit vindicating or approving of or saying, I give my stamp and seal that this is from God, that this Jesus really is God on high. As Nicodemus says, uh, your, your teachings are hard, Jesus, but I know no one can do the things that you do unless they are sent from God. The Spirit vindicating by the works that Jesus does, by his miracles, that Jesus really is the Son of God. He really is divine. Ultimately, the, the final stamp on this is his resurrection. Uh, his resurrection is the undeniable proof that he was vindicated for all of his actions and activities, including his death on the cross. That the, that the sacrifice was true and final and right and fitting and, we would say, effectual for his people. We have confidence by the vindication of the Spirit in the resurrection. Those first two uh, lines are, are tied together, and uh, this is a quote from uh, a commentary. This first couplet speaks to the accomplishment of Christ's work. So his incarnation and all of what the Spirit does to vindicate him is the accomplishment of his work. The second two lines have to do with the revealing of his work to the world. So the first two have to do with what he does. The second two lines have to do with how that work is then propagated to creation. It's observed by the angels. The angelic host observe and see and, as some writers tell us, marvel at the mystery of how this actually took place. And not only that, but he's also proclaimed among the nations. So it's not, it's not enough that Christ just does these things and then uh, goes away. But his gospel must be proclaimed by the teaching of the apostles and by the teaching of the church. In, in some sense, it brings a greater glory to the activity of Christ. So his gospel is preached, as Paul says at the end of Romans, so the gospel of the kingdom has been proclaimed in the whole world. Uh, the gospel of the kingdom has been proclaimed among the nations. That's what Paul is saying here. And in large part, this is Paul's whole life's mission, is to make sure the gospel is proclaimed among the nations. Actually, that's still what the church is up to, to make sure that the gospel is proclaimed among the nations. Now, in, in a 21st century world, that does not mean that you have to pick up and go uh, somewhere you've never heard of before, although that could be God's calling on your life. Uh, it could be that you figure out about a particular population, maybe a refugee population or otherwise, in our own local city who does not have the gospel proclaimed to them faithfully. Uh, it could honestly be, uh, if you were to live in a city like New York City or you have to learn to li uh, live in certain parts of Indianapolis, uh, you go to the unbelieving atheist who has not had the gospel proclaimed to them yet, and you do the same. The point is the gospel being proclaimed is linked to 
the manifestation of Christ and his vindication in the spirit, that you are re-putting Christ forth by your evangelism and your mission as a Christian. So that the angels observe the glory of what Christ accomplished and it is proclaimed by his people into the world. That's that second couplet. And the third couplet has to do with the response, the response of these various groups as they, uh, they see his glory proclaimed. How do they respond? Well, the proclaiming among the nations is responded to by believing on in the world. Uh, he was believed on. So it wasn't just that he was preached, but as Acts tells us, he was not only preached, but people responded. People responded in faith. People responded in faith and became part of the church. And they turned around and they made more disciples. So it's not just that he was preached into some vacuum, ineffectual, but the preaching and the proclamation of Jesus actually returned disciples. As, as God says to Paul in the city of Corinth, I want you to go into that city, Paul, because I have many people in that city who are my people. So go on preaching. So the, the mission of the church is one that is effectual. Uh, as a Christian, you have, in some sense, a guaranteed success by the Spirit of God that your evangelism will be meaningful. Uh, your evangelism will have a, a yield. So that's, that's the one response. That's the human response to the activity of Christ. And the final response is the, uh, the heavenly response to his, his earthly work, uh, which is that he's taken up in glory. He ascends to the right hand of the Father. So his vindication of the Spirit is in the resurrection. The ascension, him being taken up into glory is that final approval of, or the final response of heaven to all of the work of Christ, such that uh, he is now the rightful king reigning at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. His taken up into glory, that happens before the gospel is proclaimed, but it's the responses of heaven and earth to the work of Christ. So you see the structure of the hymn, Christ's work, uh, both uh, his work on earth and his work by means of the Spirit, the response of heaven, or the observation of heaven by the angels, the observation of the earth uh, in, in it being proclaimed, and then the world's response, and then heaven's response. You see the, the structure of this hymn. Okay, so now you get the hymn. Now the question is, what on earth does that have to do with godliness? Well, as I've kind of been asserting the whole time, godliness is tied with what we believe. To do away with any part of this, is to do away with a core reality of how you ought to live your life as a Christian. For instance, the manifestation of the flesh has to do with how you discipline your body so that you would be holy unto the Lord. That he is proclaimed among the nations uh, is in some sense the burden of the church still today as Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, preaching them uh, and teaching them and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. The idea then is, well, if he's proclaimed among the nations, well, we can't really get rid of that without, in some sense, undoing what it means to live a godly life. To live a godly life then doesn't just mean you do all the right things. In some sense, godliness is also tied with, well, how do we conduct ourselves in the making of disciples in this world? Uh, one can be uh, godly in every way, but having not preached the gospel faithfully in whatever context they're in, whether that be home, family, coworkers, friends, whatever, in some sense it falls short of what godliness requires. Godliness is a faithful witness to the world. And lastly, uh, the response of belief uh, in the world uh, also speaks to, some, in some sense, a core idea in Christianity, which is that uh, the shepherd goes out and the sheep hear his voice and they follow him. So the preaching of the gospel is accompanied by the faithful response of people out there in the world who are awaiting the gospel to be preached to them.
Uh, this is why the church is so obsessed with, some might say, missions. The, the point of the church is to get the gospel out, not just to disciple more people here, but also to make more converts everywhere. So then, uh, when, when Paul says we confess this mystery of godliness, it's tied up in what we believe, it's tied up in how we act, our conduct, our godliness, and those two things are tied together. Now, the, the way the early church would say this uh, the, is that one of the key testimonies that Christianity is true and Christ is true is that Christians live a life different from how the world lives its life. Uh, the way we say it today in the 21st century, uh, if someone believes certain things about God, let's say they believe Christian things about God, but they don't live according to that belief, we would say, well, they're a bad witness. They don't have a, a good profession. They don't have a right testimony about Jesus. Because although they might articulate all the right things, uh, their articulation doesn't actually impact their life. And so, well, they're a, they're a very dangerous person to have out there saying they're a Christian and living in a contrary way. Uh, Paul says that's exactly right. Right belief and right practice tied together such that, in some sense, what you practice is a way of preaching the gospel and what you say is a way of informing how you practice. These two things, they just can't really be divorced. And so when Paul, what, the point is to Timothy, um, all of what Paul has said about how we conduct ourselves in God's household, all of what he said about the marks of the false teachers and the true teachers, um, it's not just theological, it's also very practical. You can see it on the ground, in the day-to-day -day life. Uh, the godly are marked by godliness and right belief, and the ungodly are marked by ungodliness and wrong belief. These two things are tied together. They go hand in hand. And that's the point of this thrust at the end of the letter. Now, uh, or, sorry, at the end of chapter three. Now, as he goes on into the rest of the letter, we're going to see, especially over the next couple of weeks, how these sections really go on to elucidate how this is true, that godliness and practice go hand in hand, and ungodliness and, and false practice also go hand in hand. And that's going to be one of the ways that he dovetails his exhortation to Timothy for the rest of the letter. So with that, let me just close this in some prayer and we can get into discussion. Father, we thank you for this text, particularly um, how it can move us to want to align our hearts uh, and our lives to our profession. Lord, we know as Christians we often fall woefully short of what we profess to believe. And Lord, we confess that that's wrong and we repent that often our livelihood and conduct is not at all in line with what we say we believe. Lord, we ask for the grace of your spirit that you would enable us to live lives that are true to our profession of faith. That we would be a people, uh, a church, that all of the churches in Indy would be churches that live in accord with what they profess. And that those two things would be inseparable in your church, particularly in the West where it often feels so separated. Uh, we pray that you would start here at home with us, in our own lives, in our own hearts, uh, and by your grace move into all the world. pray this in your name. Amen.